support this uh, podcast for humans. This is episode nine, and we are joined again with our co-host uh, Armin Roniker, who has decided to join us for a second round. So hopefully, we may be seeing more of him in the future. Uh, hi, Armin. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm doing good. I hopefully, have a slightly better recording equipment this time around. Excellent. Did you buy a new microphone? Uh, I ordered it on Amazon. It didn't arrive, but um, I. I, I figure out what the noise cancellation was last time around. So I oh, fixed this. Yeah, I had to do some post-processing on your audio, but I have to do that with everybody, so it's no big deal. Yeah, so it turns uh, out Bluetooth is terrible. Oh, yes, Bluetooth audio is no good. Unless you're using AppDex. AppDex is a, is a okay encoding to use over Bluetooth. But, well, uh, the, pro- the problem is, like, if you want... Um, basically, if you want full duplex audio... The only really existing profile for this in the in the Bluetooth standard um, is uh, is like this headset standard, which is abysmal. It's like GSM quality. Yeah, definitely. And and mono uh, only. So um, that paired with um, noise cancelling headphones, just no good. So I have uh, some announcements to make. Um, I have a new album which I'm releasing. It's currently in submission. It's called Messengers Rising. Uh, it's my second album, which I'm excited about. So that should be hopefully available on Spotify and Tidal and all the streaming services for free in the next uh, week or two. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I also started uh, uh, two new libraries. Well, one I launched a little while ago, like about a month ago, called Maya, which is a date time library. And it's oriented. There's also really good ones like Pendulum and DeLorean and Arrow, but they didn't do quite what I wanted. And I built one that was kind of built around the idea of parsing uh, websites. So this one is really good for that use case. And everything is UTC by default, uh, which I understand is not perfectly accurate for everybody, but it's built for humans. So it's kind of like, you know, human time, not, not machine time. Um, so there's that. And then I also started a new library, which I haven't really talked about too much, but it's called delegator.py. And it's my attempt to rewrite Envoy, which is this old subprocess module that I wrote a long time ago. So I'm trying to write a good solid API around subprocesses. Um, and it's working really well so far. I got it working. So it, it uses the subprocesses module. It's built into the standard library. Uh, it lets you do chaining, so you can like pipe commands into other commands. Uh, it also lets you run things in blocking or non-blocking mode, turn them into daemons. Um, and it, uh, the coolest thing is that it has expect built in, pexpect, so that you can uh, you can say like if a if a process you're running in non-blocking mode asks for a password, you can programmatically provide the password. So it's a pretty useful library, and it kind of unifies all those different things into one API. So I'm excited about that. You can check it out on GitHub. At, it's called delegator.py under Kenneth Wrights. Uh, do you have any opinions about subprocess module, Armin? Uh, it's complicated. <laughs> it is. It's, it, it works really well, and it, but you just have to really read the documentation. I, I think there's um, the core issue is not even... Subprocess.py, I think the core issue is that the process model is a very, very complex, in particular when it comes to buffering and uh, and waiting for children to close and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it's just really hard to do the things that people actually expect because people kind of want what they have on, in the terminal. 
Yeah. And that actually turns out to be the absolute not common case. Like, <laughs> for a variety of reasons, like, processes don't actually work the way that the shell spawns them. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the API that I try to provide. If you run something in non-blocking mode, it returns immediately and the subprocess is running, and then you can get its PID and kill it or See, block on it. See, but the problem it. there is that while you can probably provide the API, you will struggle with actually making the implementation work without... Especially cross-platform. Run. It's definitely designed currently for uh, you know, Unix-style machines. I think on Windows it might have slightly different behaviors, um, but it's and then you can also demonize something by just calling dot demonize and it'll turn your subprocess into a daemon. So even after you close your app, it'll still be running, which is kind of cool. Which some people think is a terrible idea, but it's so easy to do. It was like two lines of code, so I added it in there. But it's it's still it's at v zero one, you know zero zero one. So I'm open to feedback if anyone wants to take a look at it. Uh, I just really want to make it so it's like, you know, if you ever need to shell out to subprocess, you have a good utility that just works that you don't have to go look at the docs for, basically. So it's not trying to be the perfect solution. It's just trying to be a really good one. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't use it for like, you know, if I was Django, I wouldn't be using it or something like that. If I needed to shell out a lot, I would probably do it by hand. But if I was, you know, just writing some code that needs to shell out, then I would use it. So it's kind of like my records project. I have a project called records.py, which is, uh, let's see here. It's really simple. What it does is it uses SQL Alchemy. Uh, with, you know, it has, SQL Alchemy is incredibly powerful and it has connection pooling and it allows you to iter- get iterables of dictionaries back for your results and stuff like that. But it's kind of hard to set that up, even if you just want to send plain SQL over this over to, like, if you just want to write straight SQL. So I wrote records, and re- records does is it's, it's basically, it takes away all the ORM and all the fancy stuff uh, and gives you just, you write, you connect to the database, you write SQL, and then it gives you iterable rows back. Uh, that are dictionaries and so and then you can export those rows as in different formats like csv or excel and stuff like that so it's it's really easy for just like taking a chunk of sql and writing a report with it or interacting with the database when you already know the, the queries that you want to use instead of having to reconstruct them at in an orm level and you, then you get all the benefits of sql alchemy on top of it so that's kind of a cool library as well records I know you you know SQL Alchemy much better than I do, Armin, because you wrote Flask SQL Alchemy, which is my that my best interaction with SQL Alchemy is through Flask SQL Alchemy. Whenever I try to use it directly, uh, I get a little confused. It's a very complex piece, I think. There's a it lot is. of stuff you can do with it. Um, it it's one of the most powerful. Uh, I mean, it's the guy who wrote it. I, I've Failing to recall his name, uh, Mike Bayer. Yeah, Mike Bayer. He um, he's he has made the claim that it's the best ORM in the world, and I think that's an accurate statement. What do you, do you mean? Do you, he he just thinks it's, it's the the most powerful ORM there is uh, in existence. Like it's the best built one, and it's the most flexible, and it's the most uh, yeah, I en- think, engi- engineered. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, as far as like alternatives to 
SQL can we go? Like even outside of Python, there are not that many. Like exactly. The, the closest probably is like Hibernate and stuff, but they're very different beasts, as particularly also in user friendliness. Um, I'm kind of curious how the future of database integration, sorry, database abstraction layers will kind of look like, because I think um, people will eventually migrate over to different storage layers. Um, yeah, I think more and more it's becoming less of a feature to support multiple databases and more of a feature to su support only one. Like, you know, you're married to Postgres. Yeah. Or you're married to Mongo as opposed to, I'm going to support everything. Uh, I think that's kind of the trend nowadays because, you know, having when you have something that supports everything, then you get usually you get the least common denominator of all of those databases available. But SQL Alchemy is really powerful and allows you to access some of the more powerful Postgres features, even though it abstracts away all the other stuff. Which, so that's what makes it really great. You, you can use HStore and you can use JSON and it fully supports all that stuff. And J Django does a good job of this too, for Postgres at least, um, of allowing you to access some of the more database specific features. Yeah, I mean, I'm strongly married to the idea of only ever supporting two databases, SQLite for tests and Postgres for production. Um, yeah. if, you, if you can, like, or, or I mean, if you're super married to MySQL, I can probably switch out Postgres for that. But just the idea of supporting both of them is uh, not a good, not a good idea. I, I, I think it's not a good idea. I mean, if you ever yeah. want to switch over from one to the other, you can still do that. That's so. why I like rec records. It's it. It does support all of them, but you have to write SQL yourself. So the SQL is is specific to your database, you know? Uh, so your SQL might run when you switch databases from Postgres to MySQL, but it probably won't because you're writing it for your specific database. So the connection is universal, but the usage is different. So uh, I think it really services the power of the, the database that you're using. Because SQL, like Postgres, can do some really magical things in its query language, if you yeah. re really get to know it. And uh, so that's why I really want to encourage people to just write SQL, because most of the time your SQL statements are pretty simple, and it gives you parameterization. Uh, that's that is universal, so it has universal parameterization that that it gets from SQL Alchemy, um, and that's nice. But that's all you need. You just need uh, to me. I I never need more than that. I don't need an ORM that's building my tables for me and stuff. I don't like that. I don't need a migration system. I just keep an append-only log of all the things I've typed into into the commands, you know, into the right into the database. I think different people have different and, use cases. And that's because... my schema, schema.sql, and it's just everything I've ever typed in. I know, I and put it, large things, and with large things, you can't do that. You, yeah, I try to build tiny things. You need migrations, things. you need... Uh, all those boring and annoying things. I just I I prefer to treat the database as though it's um, a first class citizen instead of a secondary citizen. I think if you're writing Django and you're like using it to generate your tables and stuff, then usually the database is kind of like a second thought. But I prefer to like okay, here's my database. Here's exactly what it looks like. It's set up. I'm going to connect to it now from my app. And then the schema is the authoritative source of truth, not the code base. And that's that's how I treat it. Um, so that's why I like the records model personally. But everyone has different tastes and everyone has different use cases. Yeah, I'm 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 not going to be religious about databases. I think 
Everybody. What is your what's your favorite um, no SQL database that you use? I'm I'm a big fan of DynamoDB and I'm a big fan of Redis. Those are the two that I get so a heavy I'm a, amount I'm a big of usage fan of out Redis. of. I don't really call it database, so that doesn't count as an answer. No, it's a key value store. Um, let's see, favorite database. So I quite liked the concept behind RethinkDB. I think it's like ah, still yeah. really nice, but the problem is that. It sits in I've the never same used it. See, this is the problem. It sits in the same space as MongoDB. And then everybody got burned by MongoDB and nobody wants to do it again. Um, and MongoDB so still you, has a lot of market share from people that can are Can you of... remind me what the pitch is for uh, RethinkDB? There's something really unique and special about it. It's a document store, right? So it's basically like, it's a document store similar to MongoDB. Um, but it has two big differentiators. The first one is that well, it has a bunch of them, but the first one is that it has a proper query language. Um, so you can actually make useful queries with it. Uh, I think the second big use case of it is, uh, or feature of it is that um, you can actually stream results in as they come appear on a database. So you can stay connected to a query and then as new things appear, they're being streamed into your application. So you can, for instance, you know, the, the GitHub feature was like you keep the page open and then as new comments arrive, you kind of get them in real time through website connection. Yeah. You could, because like at the, at the core of it, there's a subscription problem. So you need to subscribe to updates to a particular thing. Um, so Rethink can facilitate this. So you, you can do that in Postgres as well. Yeah, well, but not on but it's kind the same of level. Complicated. You have to use the publish subscribe system. Um, yeah, and you have to do that on the on the server side. You can't do it just on the client side. Yeah, and then they have the problem that Postgres um, doesn't support many connections to it, so it's like really not set up for this. So, anyways, you can do the rethink. Um, but I mean, like the whole problem now is that the company's gone, and it's just it's just an open source project at this point. Nobody really knows what the future of it is. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So. My other favorite thing to do is uh, I have a project called Elephant that I started, and uh, it's basically the idea is you treat Elasticsearch like a key, like a document store, because um, it's really good for that. And you know, because you can just shove a bunch of data into it, and then you can query it instantly, and it just works great. But you don't necessarily trust it, so it, every single key it gets backed up to S3 as well, and then you can flush and rebuild your index on. Um, Elasticsearch at any time, so you get both persistence and all the flexibility of a of a great document store with Elasticsearch. So that's kind of my favorite approach. I haven't used it in production for anything um, yet, but I think that it's one of the best approaches because uh, Elasticsearch is very very powerful and it's very simple, which I like. Well, it's very complicated, but it can be very simple if you use it just at at its core for what it does. So uh, I really am a fan of that approach. So I built, uh, it's basically a little web API that you sit in front of it and you just do rest, it's a restful API. So you just can push, you know, patch, update, delete items and each one gets a yeah. UUID and uh, it all get each UUID is a key and that's that's what's stored on S3 and the value is just the JSON of what it was. And it's uh, it's a good system. I think you, you could really build something super robust with it. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to yet, but if anyone wants to check that out, it's called Elephant. Any feedback as well? I just it was broken for a while because Elasticsearch grew so much over the last couple of years, but I fixed it this weekend, so it works with the latest uh, found Elasticsearch. Um, 
and on runs on Heroku and all that stuff. So I think it's pretty cool. I need I need to find something to to use it with. <laughs> Usually, if I need a key value store, I just use S3 as a key value store. Yeah, and um, the thing is, like my toy projects are all small enough that I can just use Postgres, and then I'm done with it. And then like the only big project I have right now is Sentry. Um, that already has like a big storage layer. I'm not going to go into and like re-architect it. Yeah. So, no data storage experiments for me. Uh, okay, so you had some topics you wanted to talk about. What was the first one? Well, the first one would be uh, basically a, it's a sort of philosophical uh, exploration about why certain communities of programmers are willing to accept terrible development environments and others are not. Um, so sort of, do you feel like the Python ecosystem is accepts terrible envir- development environments? Uh, more than some others, I guess, but less than some others. So the, the, the negative example I have for where there are developers which are really accessible um, in, in, in accepting a terrible development environment would be iOS developers. Uh, because I have had the uh, pleasure slash misfortune to work a little bit with Apple's developer tools more in depth the last couple of months um, in the context of Sentry, obviously. And I went to a bunch of meetups now. I talked to a bunch of people that work uh, more directly with Apple than some others. And the channel response has been that, yeah, if you work as a developer for Apple, and I'm not mean like, I don't mean like work for Apple in the company, I mean like for Apple platforms, then things just break. There is no communication channel. Um, some of the APIs just magically appear, disappear. And there's just so many examples of where it's basically like a black box. Like someone gives you an API and you have to deal with it. Um, and then it well, has... kind of comes from the walled garden effect, right? But I don't believe that's necessarily the case because, for instance, Microsoft runs the same system in many ways. Like if you develop for Windows. Um, yeah, but but they have a different approach where... C Sharp has always been open source, even though there was never a good implementation of it until Mono came about. It was always the spec was open source. Anybody could re-implement the language if they wanted to, right? Yeah. And but, and Microsoft goes out of their way to make sure that the development experience is as good as possible. That's not the historical thing. Because if you go back to Win32 API, uh, they were always well, super yeah. like, proprietary and everything. And even then, Microsoft took great care about making the developer experience great. So, for instance, practical example, Visual Studio is a good IDE. It's the best X, IDE. But Xcode is not. Um, yes. And it's just a simple example. A more complicated example is that uh, whenever like you, have, you build an application, ship it to a client, and then it starts crashing. Um, how do you figure out why it crashed, why it crashed? Um, <laughs> oh, for Sentry, you probably... Do you yeah, support I mean, like iOS with Sentry? Yeah, so yeah, that's that's obviously the key, the reason why I'm like a little bit interested in this is because I'm I'm making sure that this kind of stuff works in the context of Sentry. But it shows you quite a bit about how different people care about this because when mm. when so one of the things that that there is is this uh is this saying that like developers really like to replace themselves with a little shell script. Um and in order to do that, so the idea of automating your own processes requires that there is something to script. So, for instance, um, I, I, I hate like publishing packages on PyPI, so I made a little script which I can run, 
which makes sure that the, the current release is tagged, that the date is correct, that there's a code name set, um, that it builds a wheel in this uh, tarball and it ships it up to PyPI. So that's a practical example of what I like to do. I like to automate things. Um, there is so much lack of automation in, in, in Apple environments. It's ridiculous. So if you want to like process crashes that happen in production on people's client devices, you need some debug information. The only way to get this debug information is to literally plug in that person's iPod or iPhone or something else into your computer, download whatever is on that device, like the debug service ah. from that. There's no way, there's no API you can use with, with, with Apple to get debug symbols from a central place. There is with Microsoft for ages. They have a symbol server. You can just connect to it and you just get the debug symbols. And it's just such a simple example and there's so many of them. And it, it's it's staring that they don't have anything. Or um, if you, if So you, when you're developing for iOS, you basically have a bunch of test devices and you battle test every situation on your own devices. And then when you send it out to the world, you're just kind of like hope, fingers crossed that Yeah, in a way. I mean, no like there, there, there are companies like Sentry, which like do a whole bunch of work to make sure that you can actually get crashes from production devices. But the amount of crappiness they have to go through to, to yeah. get to this result is just quite staggering. Are um, there any um, terms of service limitations around that so as well? This is this is this part where it gets really weird. It's like this is the part where nobody really wants to talk about it too much. So <laughs> so so I have a um, a good friend of mine and colleague. Uh, he wrote a tool called Fastlane, and it's Fastlane. it's it's um. It's basically um, a Ruby library and and Quantum tool which helps you do iOS development. And one of the things, for instance, it does is it can make screenshots of your application so that if you have like translations to different languages, you can like basically make the screenshot for your uh, for your app store. Yeah. Um, in, yeah. Like on all different platforms and make so, sure you. So it's like web. So it's kind of like WebKit to PNG type of it, a it's thing. It's one of it's one of the many things it does, I and mean, it also does like. Um, it manages your encryption certificates and so forth. But the really funny thing about this is it has a basic library called Spaceship. Uh, I think it's called Spaceship. And Spaceship is basically, um, it basically logs into iTunes Connect by parsing HTML and JavaScript. Oh and, my God. And bypassing, like, um, like making sure that two-factor authentication gets sent into your terminal and so forth. It's like a really crude hack. Um, and I can tell you that an enormous number of developers are using uh, fast in these days because it's just insane not using it. Um, yeah. But if you look at the the, the, the the base scaffolding that kind of goes behind this, it's it's like like whenever Apple pushes out an update to iTunes Connect, Fastlane breaks for a day or two. I mean, I don't know how fast they are at fixing this at this point, but I mean, it's just retarded in, in so many ways because you could just literally just talk to one Apple engineer and say like, hey, can we have an API for for X, Y, and Z? iTunes Connect. Yeah. iTunes Connect or, or debugging which is or, Which is the tool you use to manage your deployments and all your payments and all of your versions of your yeah, application. Yeah. And it's just it's so stupid. And They have an iPhone app for that, so I'm sure there's an API. You're just probably not allowed to use it. <laughs> Yeah, well, you better not talk about how you reverse engineer those APIs and everything. But it's just what I don't understand is like why is it acceptable? Because surely after many years of dealing with Apple on that front, someone should have like had a serious talk or. Well, or, I have uh, and some I, experience that's the other thing. in this I remember arena. this from your situation as well because. Um, I decided one day that I was fed up with installing a six gigabyte 
download that took four hours of Xcode every time I reinstalled my machine. So I, I, I took a whole day and I stripped down, I found uh, the utility in Xcode to manage installers. And I took the Xcode installer and I one by one removed each package that was not necessary until it was as small as possible to build homebrew packages, basically. And I released that as OX, OSX GCC installer. And it was, it's by far my most popular project. The whole Ruby community used it. It was like in the Rails tutorial. You know, Homebrew recommended it. Everybody recommended it. And then I get a call from Apple one day and they're like, yo, uh, you're, you're technically shipping some proprietary code in there. So our lawyers wanted us to, to send you a cease and desist. But instead, I want to ask you to help us because we want to do what you're doing. So I talked to the product manager of Xcode on the phone and he hooked me up. And uh, basically, I helped him design uh, the command that you have in the command line tool now, which is Xcode select and dash dash install, which gives you the command line developer tools. Um, which is like a 300 meg download now, and it's separate from the whole Xcode experience. So Apple did improve that, but only after I improved it for them. <laughs> but so the interesting thing about this particular case is that there was like, uh, there was a critical mass. And the critical, it was. And the critical mass did not actually come out of the iOS community. The critical mass came out of the, of the Python community, the Homebrew community, the Rails community. Yes. Um, but now it different. impacts every developer that uses Apple, period, because I went and did that work, which is really exciting. But at um, the same time, iOS people don't care. Like Now, working a little bit with iOS people, I can tell you nobody cares about the command line tools. So that's why it was an afterthought. Uh, but they, they do want to help us, the, you know, the people like us who work on things that we do. So they, they did go out of their way to make sure that it was good and that you don't have to... I, I said that it, it needed to be available without signing any contracts, and that made it really difficult. Uh, they had to do some things, but now now it just hooks up to your App Store account, so they made it as seamless as possible. And still, every time they make an update, one of my test runs fails because something times out waiting for me to read the uh, run that program as sudo and read the terms uh, of service and press enter, whatever it is. I've never had that issue personally. Oh no, it happens. But but it's still a much better experience than it used to be. Yeah, it used of to course. be that you'd have to install all of Xcode and like we don't need Xcode but at all. There are so many examples. And Xcode of keeps where... getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and so it's good that it's separate a separate project now. But and, basically uh, in that project I, I can't check the downloads anymore because it the tarballs are uploaded on GitHub and they disabled that functionality. But last time I checked, it was over 56 terabytes of downloads for that 200 meg file. So it was definitely, it was amazing how many people used it. Yeah. But the thing and is, I, that I, and I'm is very not... thankful to GitHub for the free hosting, by the way, because that would have cost me a fortune. <laughs> but the thing is, this is not just contained to like some things of Apple. It's, it, it goes through all the development tools. Um, and most of that is never fixed. So, for instance, um, uh, I, I tried to fix a bug in, in Rust recently where if a Rust application crashes on iOS, it doesn't tell you where it crashes. Uh, it tells you a little bit where it crashes. It tells you which function it was in, but it doesn't tell you file name and line number. 
Um, and I wanted to fix that. So I went in and tried to figure out how the hell does Xcode do the same problem, basically. And it turns out there's a, there's a system, it's called, um, I don't know, forgot the name, but Apple only implements the bare minimum of that library. It's a standardized library, it can use it on, on POSIX uh, systems. Which, li which library is this? I don't know what it's called, I think it's called, uh, I'll tell you in a second. I think it's called libaddr or something. Okay. Um, but this is like a it's a it's a very old support library which can tell you um, in in where in the, in a native app when it crashes where where that happened. And there's like libbacktrace, for instance, which can do some of that support. Uh, and there's some others. I can just tell you what it is. Give me a second. Um, lib libaddr uh, is the one that I'm thinking about. So anyways, Apple implements this, but it only implements like a bare minimum. It doesn't support like line numbers, file names, and so forth. So look what Xcode does. Xcode comes with a tool called uh, A2S. Um, it comes with another tool called uh, Symbolize, Symbolize Crash. Um, it comes with LLDB. And all of those theoretically are open source libraries, right? Like LLDB is LLVM. But if you look at what, like how these tools are built, like they're proprietary yeah. versions of an open source library and it turns out that they link against a private framework called course invocation on, on OS X which doesn't have a header um, so you can't use it yourself unless you reverse engineer it and then you look at GitHub and there are like dozens of independent projects which reverse engineer this private framework and start to use it because it turns uh. out this is a really useful functionality which A is kind of questionable with regards to the terms of service of Apple Secondly, there's no guarantee that it will continue functioning in the future. Now, from my conversations with Apple, often that's not an oversight and it's not an accident. Of it's course usually it's not an oversight, because but that's it's, it's because of it's because of uh, proprietary agreements with third-party vendors. Like for example, Xcode GCC installer was difficult because uh, Nvidia has headers in there, and they have to make sure that you know they have a certain license. Uh, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Yeah, but honestly, I don't care. I, I don't care. I, I literally... You don't care, but Apple uh, Apple but, has to do it that way because they're no, such a large case, company. In that case, it's absolute bullshit because they can just implement lib, uh, DLADDR on top of course embolication. They don't have to open source or publicate course embolication. They can just take a standardized interface which exists for, I don't know, I wouldn't say thousands of years, but eternity in computing terms. Thousands of years. <laughs> And they could support that. And then they wouldn't have to make proprietary patches against open source libraries. Well, to go so to go back to what you were saying, I think that maybe one of the reasons that people find it acceptable for the, to have a worse developer experience is because the, the, the value that they get out of developing iOS applications, in other words, the money makes it worthwhile. You know, if the, if it was all free and all the apps were free and no one was making money, then I think that the developer experience would probably be better because people would spend more time improving the developer experience. But everyone who's making iOS develop applications is so focused on making money that that they yeah, don't have I get time. This, I get to... this to a point, um, but I don't get it entirely because at one point people start to realize how shitty the development experience is. Because some outside person introduces something into the environment and all of a sudden it establishes itself as a standard. So, for instance... Um, so, you have like a lot of large companies that do ship really good iOS libraries, right? Like, 
and they but they they aren't imp- they're improving the developer experience from a library perspective but not necessarily from a workflow perspective right like no yeah. there's no big like Guala or facebook or someone like that who ships ios um they ship ios code for free uh they they're not necessarily writing workflow tools for developing applications they're they're all focused on you know, like making requests basically for iOS and stuff like that. I just wonder, and I don't think that's unique to iOS. I think there are many other systems that are in the same spot. I I really just want to understand why in some environments that would never fly and in others it's okay. And it seems to be institutionalized in many ways because, for instance, Python has a terrible packaging infrastructure. Like, well, it's it's vastly improving very quickly. Yeah, but the fundamentals are so bad. Like, for instance, the yeah. import system. You can only have one library. Like, people do this vendoring shit and everything, and then we have the situation <laughs> with Debian where they try to unvendor it, and they have, like, genomous hacks to try to make it work somehow. And it's just fundamentally terrible. Um, and, but nobody does anything about it because we have accepted it as that's as good as we will ever get in Python. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't it make be, any it sense. Would, it would be too much work to change it at this point because no one has the time or the expertise. I the only people, there's know. only like eight people on the planet who have the expertise to fix it and they're all busy fixing other shit, basically. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know if that's true because like so much changes with the import system but it's like i think part of that reason is because a lot of this change happens in python 3 and people can't uh-huh. build stuff which only happens in python 3 like everybody still has to support python 2 as well or at least i think that'll change over the next three years i think over the next three years we'll see more and more libraries coming out that are three only and that'll be more acceptable as we approach the end of life window yeah we'll see how this goes but at least on python 3 no major change has supported multi-version libraries and the ecosystem for packaging is still horrible. Yeah. Um, and I think including virtual env with Python 3 makes it worse, not better, personally. Yeah. I've never I've never used the built-in one because I'm so familiar with the command the separate one, you know. And, and then it I, doesn't work half the time anyways. I, I did tutorials recently and I realized that the if you use uh, what was it? I think if you use the Ubuntu version of Python and you try to use that virtual env, it's slightly incompatible. Oh, um, uh. Because they have, I don't know what they did, but uh, well, in any case, mo- I ended up just trying to, <clears throat> I found a way to actually get the original virtual env working with it somehow. Um, well, yeah, r- real virtual env works great with everything. So that's what I use. Uh, but I, I tweeted that we were recording a podcast and I asked if anyone had any questions for us and I got two responses. So I thought we could go through those if you want. Sure. Okay, the first question is from uh, David uh, Harari, and he says, are there any unsolved problems that you want to see an open source solution for? Yes. That's a very broad question. I have one thing I would love to build or have someone else build, which is I want, uh, I wouldn't call it a web development framework, but I would want it called uh, like uh, X framework. I don't know what it's called, but it's a, it's a, it's a thing which solves which would facilitate building larger scale applications mm-hmm. uh, larger scale web backend applications for instance where you have like 
it would come with multiple layers, including like a WebSocket hub, um, a message queuing system, um, uh, a way to build stateful applications where the, the hub connection and the user session are strong components in the system where if you always hit the same hub, the hub can store some information about the user session so that it can route requests more efficiently in the backend. So that the so kind of like sticky sessions type of an idea. Yeah, it's sort of. It's like, um, have you ever used Kafka? I, I have not. So uh, one of the things that, I'm one mildly of the things, familiar with it. One, one of the things that Kafka is it's like a message queue, but one of the things that makes it uh, nice for certain setups is that the, the consumer is basically working exclusively on its little partition. Um, yeah. Which means that you can, I mean, it makes it harder to reason about how it works because you have to split the individual tasks so that the consumer is never overloaded and it can actually operate within this little shard. Yeah, WebSockets but, kind of introduced an in, a hard concept into programming because it's, uh, I, when I, I have experience with WebSockets uh, when we rolled them out at Heroku and um, they're, they basically are this impossible thing to wrap your head around for most people. Most people think they want WebSockets and that they're great, but I think that they're terrible unless you really understand them. And it's it's that they're like, okay, let's take this infinitely stateless system that has a little bit of state, you know, with cookies and parameters and stuff and sessions that, you know, you can fake fake state with and let's actually have a stateful connection over it and it the whole web is built around and best practices are built around statelessness and and you have to if you're going to handle websockets properly you have to build stateless statefulness into your application uh so you for me i my solution was to use redis to to keep track of everything like if yeah i think that's what most people do but the problem is that you need to think this further is like, where is the future of like this sort of backend infrastructure going to be? And I think that it will just naturally go into stateful architectures because we have HTTP2 now, HTTP2 now which is yeah, stateful. hilariously stateful um, to the point where both client and server have to keep state just to, just to compress the headers, for instance, and like stupid, ridiculous crap like this. Um, but then obviously, because they're already stateful, you can like grab the state into further parts of the system. So I would love to Do you to think see that we're going to move away from, or do you think there's an opportunity for web developers to move away from the idea of everything being stateless and trying yeah, to think, introduce th- good core mechanics for statefulness I within think, an application? I think we'll see stateful architectures in the future much more because it statefulness will facilitate also... Um, geographically redundant applications to work a lot better because yeah um, that, that is a really hard problem in a status architecture because so like your if data you were stores to see a, somewhere else completely um, if you were to see a stateful edition of flask it, like if you were to rewrite it from scratch and it was to kind of support the a yeah. flask like framework that was you know so minimal. the reason why it doesn't exist is because python doesn't work for this at all and the reason it doesn't so and the reason why it doesn't work is because the, the thing that kills it immediately, this kind of stuff, is that you have this one hub point um, which contains like the user session and, and all the state. Um, and the worker still wants to be stateless, right? You want the worker not to also have to be... Like, the worker should cycle and you don't want the worker to be stateful, but you want the worker yeah. to be able to get the state quickly. Um, and You need something that's terminating 
this the the not the connection but the state something you need a yeah. state can, uh, terminator so you have a terminator for the session and then you have like redis for instance where like where the, where the where the state could live or something like this i don't know it's like it's quite abstract right now but imagine that you have this website connection hub and then this has some state and then the, the bulk of the state lives somewhere else on a different node and there's a router that goes to it and so forth um, but basically what you end up with this is a serialization overhead because as like you, you spawn tasks on a worker, the worker needs to get a whole bunch of data from elsewhere. And deserializing this data is really expensive in Python. It, ki- now, it kills now, all the nice uh, designs. You have, well, function calls even in Python are expensive if you're doing a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know that there there's a really good web architecture that people don't really use very often that you have used in the past, I believe, when you were working for some game development companies. And the idea is effectively every single incoming HTTP request, you stick on a queue and then you spin off an appropriate number of workers to handle the incoming queue. Yeah. And uh, that that did work well in Python, did it not? It scales, yeah, but it's slow. It's slow, as in it, there's just a. You spend is it an sc- enormous time. This, so it's scalably this. slow, as long as it's it's predictably slow. Yeah. And, okay. And it has obviously the queue pressure problem, which everybody has. Um, and there are different ways to deal with it. Like you can convert your queue into a stack, so if it overloads, someone will always get a fast request, and then some people because one of the problems you have is like. If you push all your tasks on a queue and you're pushing more items onto the queue, then you're actually popping off. It yeah. just builds up. Um, so one of the options is you reverse it. You push it in on the front and then you also pop it off at the front. So if the queue overloads, then uh-huh. some, eventually the task will be so old that nobody wants to work wait for them anymore anyways and they will just fall off. Um, now, are there good queue systems that do that now or did you just write that in Python? I wrote this on top of Redis because with Redis you can okay. easily do that. Um, the problem, though, you run into very quickly is that serialization overhead kills you. Um, and then you start tricking around. You try to avoid... I mean, it shouldn't be that bad. It should just be like 20 milliseconds at the most, right? It depends on how much data you push into it. Yeah, I guess... Yeah, that's like, right. For instance, if you want to like take Sentry as an example, if Sentry would go with a system like this, I mean, we already have a queue anyways, so it's like a little bit ridiculous. And I'm assuming... Are you using... Um, am I assuming that you're using JSON type of serialization, or can you use some of those faster ones that are like built by Google? I mean, you can make it faster. So here's the thing: like at the very least, at the edge, you will talk JSON to the client, right? Yeah. So the most obvious optimization that you can do is you just keep JSON all the way through, and you try to not deserialize on the path. Um, so you're only deserializing like at the edge, of the, at the end of when when you go to the worker. Um, so that's obviously a thing you can do, but still, I mean, like, what would make a system like this a lot more interesting is if deserialization is free. Um, and that's, for yes. instance, the idea that you have this stuff like Protobuf, which ha- is Google using... Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking of, Protobuf. But um, Protobuf is not free in Python because every object that you deserialize needs to have a Python header. So it can only be free in C++ or Rust or a language which doesn't require boxing of objects. So that's what I'm saying. Like mm. that just doesn't work with Python. Um, now, and if you use something like Pickle, you have the exact same problem. Yeah. 
And it's a huge problem because, for instance, one of the most like low-hanging fruits of processing performance improvements that we had in Sentry was that we had source maps to deal with. And source maps are basically huge JSON structures. And we used yeah. to deserialize them in Python. And we spent the majority of the time literally just parsing JSON and like creating these objects and everything. And we originally planned on like writing this super efficient in-memory format. Did you in- try uh, just like running that on PyPy instead and seeing if it was faster? It's... It's not even relevant to our problem because even if you can get that part running on PyPy, there's like more infrastructure to run. Uh, it's like it, it was easier for us to rewrite this in Rust than it was to like okay. try it in PyPy. But the interesting thing is like we had this idea like we are going to build this really cool format and like we can seek in memory and we can like do all this kind of cool stuff with it. But it just turns out that we just had to parse it. Like they just had to parse the chase in Rust, and it was already this problem solved. And so, are you are you then doing the rest of it in Rust, or are you handing it off to Python? We're still all in Python. The only thing we're doing in Rust is like we are parsing it there. We are like looking up in the in the in the thing there, and we're never creating Python objects. So you're, whenever... you're, so you're creating a Python object with the C Python API in Rust. It's a tiny Python objects, which is just a, a wrapper around a huge structure, which is somewhere in memory in Rust. Pi- yeah. So we never have to pass the huge JSON back to Python. So it's like we're, we're taking a string, you're parsing it. Oh, in Rust, okay. You're so you're using Rust kind of like like a Redis or something where you're... Yeah. Okay, I see. I so see. we're just passing tiny bits of information around, but we never have to wrap the individual pieces. It um, sounds like you should open source that. <laughs> it is open source. We're an open source company. Everything is open source. What What is the name of that project? Uh, it's called uh, LibSourceMap, I think. It's get sentry slash LibSourceMap. LibSourceMap. That sounds like some really heavy-duty stuff. It's super easy, though. That's cool. I mean, I don't work on anything that requires that level of optimization. Um because for me, I just, if, you know, as long as it's scalable, I'm fine. Um, yeah, but I'm just saying, like, if, if you want to build, or the question was originally. Wow, this is a tremendous difference. It's 500 milliseconds versus 0.05. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I can definitely see that being a big improvement. Now, is there any way for you to write this with, like, um, C Python or what's it called? There are many uh, ways you could do it. Python, but the thing Cython is we already, or something like that. We already had a tool written in Rust which parses source maps, so like it was the obvious thing to do. Like just take the thing we already have, try it. We just tried it, and it turns out to be fast. And then we just went with it. But what makes so it fast well, is could, the lack of you overhead. You should. Could could you turn this into a pip installable library? Pip install lib source map. Yeah. You can do that. You can literally do pip install libsource. That's how we distribute it. And it and it's specifically for parsing JSON. It's specifically for parsing source maps. Oh, I see. Only source maps. So I can't use it for arbitrary JSON. Uh, no, but you could easily, like, if you have something similar to, to um, where you have a huge JSON thing, you only care about tiny bits and pieces about it, you can apply the same principle and I see. So the idea is I want to take a large chunk of JSON and I I don't need all the information in it. Yeah. And so then you can offload it to Rust and Rust will do it quickly. Yeah. And because it's Rust, you can you can you can pip install a Rust library because it compiles down to We actually we we publish um, binary builds. That's fantastic. Wow. I might have to uh, 
come up with an excuse to play with this. It looks like it's not super popular because this is something that it's, most developers don't care about. Most people don't care about source maps. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> But the thing is that the principle behind it is, is uh, object creation is very cheap in Rust because it's basically, you don't create anything. It's just a little bit of memory allocation, pop some bytes over it. And that's why I think that if you want to build this distributed web framework that I was like imagining in my head, you would probably pick a language like C++ or Rust for it because it gives you this opportunity to get rid of your entire deserialization overhead. You could literally like plop some memory over network and then read it in the other process. And yeah, yeah. And, and that's that's what I'm thinking. Like this would be quite cool. I think Rust as a language is not far enough in yet to facilitate this. Um, now, did you consider the approach of CP, like the the Jeff Atwood approach that uh, computers are cheap, cheaper than than development labor, and you could just throw CPUs at the problem? Yeah, uh, yeah. But the thing is that. You have to think a little bit into the future of like where computers will be, and yeah. I, I don't think that Python has a bright future for distributed computing. Um, I, just because, I mean, there are some companies which are trying to make this thing work in new ways. Like, I mean, Google has this Grumpy or whatever they call it, where they try to compile Python to Go and stuff. But fundamentally, oh really? I haven't seen that. Python is Grump- not moving grumpy? into a multi-core setup at all. Um, so I don't. No. I, I don't think Python is the answer. To Although there is the project to remove the gill, galectomy by Larry Hastings. Yeah, I mean there are many attempts to do things. I just. I don't think trust if them. anyone's going to be successful, I think it'll be Larry. Uh, he he uh, he's pretty serious about it, and he has a lot of. But um, my my life is too short to deal with, to hope for some things and. I'm not hoping that, like, um, maybe it would be nice. So, if so let's just say but... Galactomy is successful and they get a, a say, Python 3.7 or 3.8 is gillless. Would that change your approach here? So, first of all, this is a theoretical thing. I'm not actually going and build something in Rust that does this. I'm just saying, I think eventually someone will solve this problem. We'll build a framework for it. Um, and under current trajectories, I expect the technology for this to be C++ or Rust. Maybe, maybe something in Go if they figure out a nice way to avoid boxing objects. I don't know enough about Go if that sort of thing is feasible. Um, there is some peculiar peculiarities when it comes to the garbage collector there, so I'm not sure how this works. But theoretically. Um, I think something like this will will become a large open source framework at one point. I I, I think probably this like might an Apache a project or something. Um, yeah, especially with like thing. Kafka and things so, like that so becoming the popular. The reason why I think this will become uh, something like this will become a standard is because if you think back web development like six six to eight years ago. People started just picking up things like Django and and um, and, and Rails and, and and all of a sudden we started building a little bit cleaner. Yeah. Uh, web apps. a lot a lot cleaner. Yeah, 
Um, and then there was an expectation that you do this kind of stuff. And then even in the PHP world, which at that point didn't particularly like clean code, started having code igniter and, and frameworks of that sort. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so it was a clear path from like some spaghetti thingy to reasoning about data and, and, and objects and data access and that kind of stuff, transactions, sessions, and so forth. And that was like an abstraction layer. And it just became the expectation. And now you can't build an app that has like shitty internals. You have to start with something clean as this. Um, and now with HTTP2, I think what we have the expectation that the applications become real time, become um, mm-hmm. like deal with more data in general. Um, so I think eventually the pressure will be high enough in the open source community to have a new basic framework that it can use to build these new types of applications that deal with multiple front-ends that can talk to Facebook Messenger bots, all that kind of stuff, which requires more interactivity, that require a higher number of concurrent connections, that require like, better database layer access, that sort of stuff. Um, so eventually someone will build this just because some cool startup will say that I'm we're sufficiently annoyed that it doesn't exist yet. Um, yeah. I just don't know yet uh, what the base of the technology will be. And and that'll I have a feeling that'll be in like three to five years. I don't think that'll happen anytime soon. Yeah, I think it's off a little bit. And maybe at this point, maybe uh, we'll have another dot com bubble and it drags it out further. Um, <laughs> well, because I mean, I think I think the approach that we're taking today with HTTP one point one is really good, and I think it works pretty well because it is as long as you can build scalable code, then you can predict their latency and then scale appropriately. And that, that seems to work pretty well for most people, for most use cases. I think if when you're getting into this other paradigm that you're talking about, I think that it's a much different approach to software development. And then people, I don't, when I think about that, I think that that sounds great and I'd like to build that. But then I think, I don't know what I would build that would actually need that functionality. You know, I because everything that I need does fit into HTTP 1.1 So I think, I think the part where you start to realize that it gets a little bit weird is chatbots and and any kind of like real-time updating of stuff. Um, maybe chatbots are not necessarily that case because you can deal with like webhooks and, and all that sort of stuff and, yeah. and development of webhooks has become tremendously easier with things like NROC where you can expose your local development machine to other IP addresses and stuff. Um, oh, what's the name of that? Ngrok. Ngrok? It basically builds a tunnel from your local development server. So- I have been wanting... I was going to build this a long time ago because I wanted to make... I have a twisted server called SSH out that allows you to create just a, a temporary SSH connection to your machine so someone could SSH in and like poke around and then leave. Um, I thought that would be kind of cool. I might be able to utilize this to build that. So that would be good. I've seen this before when I was doing Alexa development. I saw Ngrok and I forgot the name of it. So, uh, yeah, this looks really useful. This reminds me of, uh, well, I can't remember the, the, the Jeff Lindsay project. I think it was web tunnel, I think. And it allowed you to connect your local HTTP server to a remote thing. And you can do all this with SSH. SSH has reverse tunneling built in and allows you to to do all this fancy stuff. But if it allows for any type of connection, then I can think of some really cool things to build with it if it has a good API. Well, I 
primarily use it to expose HTTP servers to other people. Um, I would use it just to to expose if it has an API. I want to use it to expose um, an SSH server that's running in Twisted. It's a command so line utility. You can literally just like say ngrok start like local port blah 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 blah, and it gives you an IP address where you can connect to. Is there a Python library for it? Uh, I don't know what you would program for this. I mean, I would I would probably have to take a look. I might I might have a new project now. I'm excited. So the secret about it is that there someone runs a web service for you, which tunnels it for you. So yeah, um, yeah, that's great. That's great. Anyways. that's exactly. I was gonna build that, but I I didn't want. I wanted yeah, someone a else to build years it. Later. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it was like four five years ago. I wanted to build that. Um, okay, so we have one other question from our audience, and it is, uh, what does a typical day, week for you look like in terms of managing work, open source contributions, and spare time? Thank you. I think I'll answer this one first, um, and then you can answer it. For, for me, uh, my typical work day is effectively, I wake up in the morning, some days I work on some music for like an hour before I start work, and some days I just go right into work. Uh, and then I just kind of work uh, on my task queue that I have at work, which I kind of set ahead for the week. And um, and that often involves some open source contributions. Like right now I'm working on pip, pip file, which is the next version of requirements.txt for Python, which will feature a lock file. Um, so I work on that during work hours. And sometimes I work on that on the weekends too or at night, depends on when I'm when I'm inspired. Uh, and then I work on, on like Kenneth projects, Kenneth open source projects uh, in the evening, if I have any, um, I'm kind of running out of ideas of what to work on lately. So, cause I did sub process and I did date times and I'm like, I don't really know what else to build. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to figure out more libraries to write. Hopefully this Ngrok thing will give me something to play with. Um, in spare time, when the weather's nice, I go on a lot of walks and I take pictures and, um, and I make a lot of music. I, I usually spend at least an hour or two a day making music, uh, electronic music. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I have an album coming out, so I'm excited about that. Uh, I've lately also been getting into drawing a little bit and kind of doing arts and crafts, like painting and working with clay. Um I have to be in the right mood to do that stuff, but that's kind of what my general time looks like. I also have a long list of books that I like to read, but I'm very rarely in the mood to read, so I never actually do it. Um, but I am working my way through a couple books. Right now I'm working my way through Hermetica, uh, which was written by Hermes, which is supposed to be this high priest of of uh, Egypt or maybe a school of people that called themselves that like you have for the ancient philosophers. And it kind of describes this old ancient religion called Hermeticism, which uh, doesn't really conflict with any of the other major religions. Um, it's kind of like a, like a, the base class of which all the major religions are instances of. So um, I'm very slowly working my way through some of that curriculum <laughs> But uh, so that's that's what my time looks like. How about you, Armin? What does your time look like? Um, so the last two years kind of looked a little bit like this that I work late. So uh, since I'm Vienna based, so Central European time zone, 
I usually used to start working at around 2 o'clock in the afternoon and then work until like 7, make a break of 2 hours and then go from like, I don't know, 9 to like 3 in the morning. That used to be my time schedule. Wow. Um, that worked really well because I uh, I had time for uh, spending time with my boy and stuff like this in the morning. Um, not yeah, because you have a you have a kid now. Yes, so that works really well. I, I like flexible working time. Um, so now I have another guy that I work with in Vienna on Century. Um, so we'll probably shift this a little bit to more working hours that other people also appreciate. Um, but th- that's sort of how my working time was set up. Um, and then people that use my projects kind of realized that a couple of years ago I I scaled back contributions to open source quite a bit. Um, so I started picking up this again. Um, in particular, I started doing big changes to Ginger 2 recently um, because oh. I just got so annoyed by... like what, what, I, I know of so many bugs in there which exist for such a long time, so I wanted to fix them properly once, um, and I knew that's going to break everybody's stuff. So by Christmas, I started taking some some time to actually rewrite hey, I saw you tweeting about it. it. Yeah, it that's has a, a completely new compiler back and back it basically, and it broke so much stuff. So I did like one release every day to fix up all the things that I broke. Um, what is the uh, com- does the compiler still compile the bytecode? It always compiles the Python code and then compiles that to bytecode separately because of um, Google App Engine. On Google App Engine, you can't directly go to bytecode, and there's still some people uh, using this. Um, and there's some other reasons well, as well, but that's well, the biggest one. I- that's, I mean, they have the new runtime now available, so you, you can you can use real Python on the App Engine now. Yeah, I need to look at this again. But anyways, that's that's one of the things I ran into. Um, but yeah. Well, of course, you should use Heroku though instead. <laughs> and what do I do with the rest of my time? I think most of my time goes into Sentry by far. Um, uh, when I would like to read some books, don't have time for that. I'm doing audiobooks when I'm cleaning up things or when I'm driving. Uh, yeah, that the audiobooks are good. I've been doing audiobooks too. What do you? What are you current? Do you do fiction or nonfiction? It's usually uh, things about politics, uh, economics, oh, okay. that sort of stuff. Or um, European things. I have an like, I have an obsession with. Um, so one of the side effects if you work in a gaming company is that eventually you see a game behind everything. Like you see ah, the rules cool. the rules that go into it and how people play the rules. Um, and and one of the, the audiobooks that I enjoyed the most was um, Flash Boys, but not for the reason that I think most people like it. I think most people like Flash. What, what was the name of it again? Flash Boys. It's about um, high-frequency trading uh, on Wall Street. Oh, and okay. I didn't actually, like, even though I, I love economics and, and all the things that go into it, what I enjoyed most about that particular thing is that part of the book uh, covers a little bit the development of an exchange, which is based on the idea that any rule that exists will be abused by people. And yes, so it's should, very true. You should structure the rules in a way that you, even under the most antagonistic uh, player effectively yes the rule yes. still kind of performs how you expect the rule to perform um that's a lesson that i've learned from working at heroku because we give away free services that if there is any loophole in any way shape or form somebody <laughs> will exploit it yeah so and the reason why i like this uh, conceptually a lot i'm thinking about this a lot is because i think that um 
if you live in a social democracy and strong social states like Austria has, for instance, some of the rules that government sets up um, have yes. a really useful rule uh, use and they're great, but they're often abused in, in, in ways that you don't expect. And it's often very hard to change those rules. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, how can you actually achieve what you want to achieve with rules that are less likely to be abused? Ah, you see, you might maybe we'll see Armin getting into legislation in the next uh, ten yeah, years. Yeah, well, not necessarily legislation, but policy making, maybe. That's so. Uh, well, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, it's that's something that interests me a lot. Um, so a lot of what I'm reading uh, is 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 about like how uh, how humans structure things. Um, I think it's really interesting. It's uh, it's like programming, but for humans. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yes, I. Uh, there's a great book by Van Lindbergh who. I believe is currently or was at least the chair of the PSF. Uh, I think he still is. And he's also the lawyer for the PSF. And he, um, he wrote a book called intellectual property and open source. And he explains all the different licenses and intellectual property agreements that you sign usually as an American employee when you work for a development company. And uh, he explains that, you know, lawyer, speak that you see in contracts is exactly exactly like computer code basically and uh it's really cool when you understand that how how it works and how it why it's structured the way it is it's it's really interesting i highly recommend that book to anyone who does anything in open source by the way because it goes over each license and it goes over employee contracts and it goes over the worst real life worst case scenarios of things that have happened uh, like there was one guy who, uh, you know, when he signed the contract and it said that all of his ideas belonged to the company and he founded a new company two years after he left the company he was working for and it was worth millions and millions of dollars. And I think it was like the MBL or something really large like that. And uh, it his company that he used to work for sued and they got it taken away from him um, because because he hereby declared that all of his intellectual property belonged to the company. So it's very, um, it's very interesting. So I highly recommend that book. It's an excellent read and it's really short and it's, uh, you know, and it shows you like why the Apache two license is so important and why, uh, why, why you might want to use it over the BSD or MIT licenses, for example. A lot of people think those are just arbitrary licenses that you just pick and it doesn't matter, but they have really big implications of what they represent. Uh, like the Apache 2 license has a patent clause, which is really important, which the MIT and BSD licenses lack. And I believe it also contains a poison pill, uh, they call it, so that if, if any company tries to sue you for patent reasons over your open source code, they are actually uh, suing every single Apache 2 project in all of existence, if I understand correctly, um, which makes it very hard for them to approach that problem. So it's an excellent license, and that's what I use for requests, um, which is my only like project that needs protection because it's possible that a contributor who works for a large company contributes to the project and then the large company could say that they own the project because he contributed code to it um so the, the license helps protect against that 
uh, the Apache 2 license. It gives us some protections without having a CLA. Um, if I was a larger project like Django, I mean, I have the the user base that Django does, but I, I have less, um, I don't know what the right word is. I think I provide less value. <laughs> so I don't think anyone's going to be legislatively coming after me. Um, <clears throat> so I don't have a CLA. Uh, and neither does Flask. Flask is very simple. It uses BSD and MIT, right? Or one of those two? Just, just BSD. Yeah. I, um, my favorite. I, I make myself uh, an, an intentional mess of copyright on my projects. Um, it's the idea that it's a mix of all the contributions that come in from people which are implicitly agreeing on obeying to the BSD license. Um, yes. But nobody will ever be able to tell which parts are which, um, which makes it a very uh, strong um, thing for as long as people are happy with the BSD license. Um, yes, it's, exactly. It's, like, if you're from an American point of view, it's not that, like, it doesn't matter that much because if all the people are Americans, there, like, there's, a, there's a strong understanding of how licenses are being enforced but the moment you enter like international context that becomes very murky very quickly uh, um, yeah because in the courts it's all been settled in the yeah. US for each license but outside of the US I doubt that's the case so I, I want to make sure that this can be understood as like a basic work of collaboration um, yeah and it's and you know all contracts are there to enforce what isn't socially enforceable so ideally None of this should ever be a problem, but yeah. it is good to to protect yourself uh, and make sure that you're choosing a good license. So, like the the do whatever the fuck you want license is a cool license, um, but yeah, uh, you know it doesn't necessarily cover you for some more important things. And, and uh, also, if you ever get into court and you're going to have a question and like what they call it, yeah. What do you call it when you are required to uh, to, to to answer questions from the court? As a subpoena. A subpoena is it like when you're not being? Um... Oh, I can't think of what you're what it's called, but I know what you're talking about. So, anyways, there's a there's a there's a great video of Little Wayne going through one of those where he has to answer all these questions, and he and he's like laughing the judge off and stuff. Uh, <laughs> but it's basically if there is ever like you're being inquired about like the the. the your understanding of the WTF uh, public license. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like this. Like, it looks absurd. It sounds absurd. It's like exactly. you can so easily set up an environment in which the court says, like, Jesus, this is unenforceable. <laughs> it would be much better <laughs> to like proclaim something as public domain, in my opinion. Or uh, you always do have the option to write your own license, but Van Lindbergh highly recommends against it because if you ever go to court then you're pretty much screwed because there's no precedence for it but technically you can in your license put anything you want uh and it will it is legally binding so you could say that this if you use a software and you make over 10 million dollars a year you have to send me a thousand dollars and technically that is legally enforceable um now, the interesting thing that I that I think is really cool is the BSD, uh, sorry, the GPL license is not open source. It is open uh, source. Well, it's not. No, you can't change it. You're not. You're not. You're not allowed to modify it yeah. in any way, shape, or form. 
uh, and so so you cannot amend the B, uh, the GPL. You can have a secondary license on top of the GPL, so you have a split license structure, which is common for proprietary code. So if like if you don't want to be bound to the terms of the viral GPL, then uh, which is which is very um, copy left. Uh, you know, because if you use a GPL project in your code, then you have to open source all the code if you're publishing it. Um, so if often companies will offer a commercial license, which is basically exactly the same thing, except for you don't have the, the GPL to deal with, uh, which is nice. But you cannot take the GPL and add in a line about do no evil or something like that. Uh, you can with all the other licenses, but the BS, the GPL, if you actually read it, says that you are not allowed to modify its contents in any way, shape, or form. So I think that's quite a cool little tidbit about it because it's uh, because you know it claim I don't like the GPL. I think it's important, and I think that like Linux benefits from it, but I. For most projects, like requests and like, if you're if you're writing like a Python library, and unless you're going to offer a commercial license like your PyQt or something like mm-hmm. that, then GPL is almost never a good option um, in any way, shape, or form, in my opinion. Um, and I think Armin, you probably agree with that. Like Flask, if Flask was GPL, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't be, be a project at all. People wouldn't give a it. It wouldn't be popular, or people would be using it, and they would be violating the license without knowing it yeah and that's uh and then it, and then they would go to work at a big company and they're like i'm a flask expert i'm going to build this in flask and then they'd find out from the lawyers that that they're not allowed to use it <laughs> and uh and then everyone would be like that would be a really big issue and there'd be all these blog posts about it it would be a big deal so next time you go to create a project you know don't just use gpl or the wtf license you can you can learn about these things from this book called Intellectual Property of Open Source. And uh, GitHub helps you. They have a nice license chooser now, which is pretty cool. Um, so, yeah. The other thing, Armin, you had a topic you wanted to talk about yes. was community outreach, including projects like Django Girls. And um, I can't remember the name of the other one. Uh, Pie Ladies. Um I don't. What What did you want to talk about? It, it, just in general. Uh, so in particular, one of the projects that's kind of well known for a long time is, uh, or exists, and it's not an outreach program in in, in itself. Uh, it's always Google Sum of Code, where people Google are Summer being introduced into working with open source in some form or another, um, and getting paid for it. Yes, and one of the projects that exists for quite some time already is uh, the Ruby Girls Sum of Code, which is similar in nature. Uh, the idea is that uh, females um, have the chance to contribute to open source projects through this sort of grant structure. Um, yes. But what's interesting about this is that even though it's called Rails Girls Sum of Code, it's actually open for projects from all programming languages. Um, okay. So if someone has a Python open source project, they can participate in this. And if there are students which are interested in working on a project, they will come with their own mentor. So it's kind of low overhead for an open source project to participate in this. Um, The only real requirement is have a list of small issues um, 
which have like, a paper backlog cuts. and yeah, a to-do some, list. Um, and then help out the mentors if necessary to uh, guide them through the experience. Um, and it's, yeah. the entire project is sponsored through, obviously, individual contributions. Uh, so if you wanted to participate, uh, if you want to help the program, you can donate the money, but there's also commercial sponsors on it. Um, and the Travis Foundation is behind it, which are running the popular Travis continuous integration system. That's wonderful. So I, it's, I, I, it's badly named. I want to take the opportunity it's to... It's very uh, badly named because it's still called Rails Girl Summer of Codes, even though it has nothing to do with Rails <laughs> anymore. Um, but I, I, I like the idea. Um, I had one of my open source projects contribute, uh, participate in this last year. Um, mm. So it's definitely something that I think we need more of because one of the biggest issues I see uh, in open source um, is that we are a way too humo- uh, homogeneous group of people, which usually yes. are friends and then more friends and more friends and then people that know each other over the internet. Eventually, yeah. you just have this blob of people which think very the, uniform. The old boys club, right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it's not just the, the old boys club. It's also that we are building stuff which is just for ourselves. Um, and yeah. I think you notice it the most when open source projects try to do something which is not one of open source strength. Like, we are very good at building development libraries because it's from programmers for programmers. They're only ever failing open source projects when it comes to user experience. Um, yes. Like GIMP, uh, Inkscape, yes, 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 uh, Audacity, yes. all of those programs, they are, they, they are suffering from an inbreed of, of the same type of people. Like Compared they, to the commercial products yeah, that are available. Because we don't have the resources that, that commercial projects have. And we should have. Like There should be more artists in open source. There should be more UI people in open source. And that would be a very good way to... like. Uh, get outside experience in that is not coming from the same group of people. Um, oh, that would be interesting to have a commu- an outreach group that wasn't oriented towards females, but as, but be oriented towards yes. artists. But I think you will automatically get this also as a start if you start to introduce um, just females and and, yeah. and 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 other underrepresented groups into it because interests are. Vast. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the the other thing that I noticed, um, I noticed a little bit on Sentry as well, because Sentry is an open source project, but um, it's now a commercial enterprise. And uh, you notice quite quickly when you fall into the pattern of, of an open source project where you're iterating on some something which doesn't necessarily correspond to user satisfaction. You want to also have good UI design. You want to have good design in general. And that's something that's severely lacking in the open source community. Um, so yeah, we need more of that. Um, maybe we'll I, eventually uh, start building actual good applications as well and not just libraries. I want to take the opportunity to to remind anyone who doesn't know that uh, I had a book published called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Python, which is one of my open source projects. It's available at python-guide.org. And it is uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python, and it's completely open source. It's been written by over 100 people, and uh, it is available in as an O'Reilly book now. And all of the proceeds are going to the Django Girls Foundation. So um, if you want to support them, you can buy a copy of the book. 
Um, that's a good way to get money to them, or, or you could just donate directly. They have a nonprofit now that runs in the in the uh, UK, I believe, and um, I was really happy about that because I licensed the book as Creative Commons non commercial. Uh, so technically, um, it's a little sketchy for it to be published by a for-profit publisher at all. Um, but no one has taken any, um, no one has been upset about it or anything because uh, I decided to take the profits, at least the royalties from the book and put them towards a, a profitable cause, not a profit, a charitable cause. And um, and I think that kind of gets around the issue that O'Reilly is making money off the book, but I consider that to be kind of infrastructure cost for publication because all the content is available online for free anyway. Um, they don't have an exclusive license to, and someone else could publish the book if they wanted to. It's just the idea that more people will read it if it's in print form, because some people just really like print form books. So, and it's really cool. Cause I think it's the, as far as I know, this is the first time in history that humans have been able to collaboratively over the internet, over the course of two years, a really short span of time, write an entire book, a hundred different people contributing from all over the world and get it published. Uh, I think that that's a real achievement for mankind, um, that that's possible. And it's possible through tools like Read the Docs and GitHub pull requests. And uh, it's a very accessible process. If you send any pull request to that project, it'll uh, it, the, the, it's almost guaranteed that it'll be merged unless I disagree with it. <laughs> like someone keeps trying to add um, bottle to the web framework section and I want to keep it to be a best practices simplicity um, guide. So it only it recommends Django, Flask, and um, Pyramid, and those are the only three ones that it recommends um, because those in theory are the only three uh, frameworks that people in real life actually use. A lot of people do use Bottle, but um, it really has no benefits over Flask other than the fact that if you do some benchmarks, it might be a little bit faster or something like that. Uh, you know, I, there's no need to, to, to recommend two things that are basically the same, um, especially when one is obviously better or more used in the community. So I am a little bit uh, dictatorship-oriented when it comes to the stuff, but... Most of the sections I don't have an opinion on. I only really have an opinion on the web framework section and the Python installation section, which I'm going to be updating to Python 3 by default soon. I just updated it so that it says, um, let me let me go to the page real quick. But it's if you search online for like, which Python should I use? It's one of the first things that shows up is my page here on um, on Python guide. And the recommendation, and I think Armin will agree with this. Uh, so if you go to python-guide.org, there's picking an interpreter. <clears throat> and it says that the basic gist of the state of things today is as follows. Most production applications today use Python 2.7. Python 3 is ready for the de production deployment of applications today. Two or three years ago, that was not the case. 
It doesn't say that. I'm adding that in. Uh, Python 2.7 will only receive necessary security updates until 2020. And the brand name Python encapsulates both Python 3 and Python 2. So that's the, that's the state of things today. That that 2.7 is what most people are using for production, but 3 is perfectly ready for production as well. And so the recommendations, and it says I'll be very blunt, are use Python 3 for new applications. If you're learning Python for the first time, familiarizing yourself with Python 2.7 will be very useful, but not more useful than learning Python 3. And I think that's a really key thing. If you're learning Python, you should use Python. It's useful to, to know 2.7 because it's used in production everywhere, but it's not more useful than learning 3. So you should ideally learn both. They are both considered Python. Um, Software that is already built often depends on Python 2.7. And if and this is an important part too here. If you are writing a new open source Python library, it's best to write it for both 2 and 3 simultaneously. Only supporting 3 for a new library you want to be widely adopted is a political statement and will alienate many of your users. This is not a problem. Slowly, over the next three years, this will become less the case. And so that is my official stance on Python 2 versus Python 3. Uh, and I think Armin will agree. I know he has a lot of reservations about three, but I think given the fact that it's important for the community to stick together and based on the trajectory that we're on, I think that Armin agrees with all of those statements. Am I correct? Uh, it's fine. Yeah. I, I don't have strong opinions about Python three at this point. That's good. That's good. Um, so the next thing that I need to do is update the installation guides to have them install on Python 3. And then once that happens, I'll be able to update uh, the, Hero the Heroku getting started guides to have it. So if you're getting started on Heroku, you're building a new app. So it'll go through the process for Python 3 instead of Python 2. And then... Over the course of the next three years, I'll be able to make the default version of Python become three instead of two. But that's not appropriate yet because most applications that are deployed use two. Uh, and uh, I haven't checked the numbers in a while, but um, I know about a year ago, 10% uh, of our web applications that were being deployed over the, uh, the month window I was looking at were using three. Um, which is a pretty high number, I think. A surprisingly high number. I'd have to check it again to see what it is today. But um, that should give you some insight into the adoption rate of Python 2 and Python 3. But Because most people aren't building new applications. Most people are maintaining old ones. So if you're starting a new one today, you should be using 3. And I just did this. I built SayThanks.io, and uh, it uses Python 3, and everything works great. I'm using Flask and Jinja and uh, Records and a lot of my own libraries, and everything works great on 3. Um, I don't think there's any reason to use 2 for a new project unless you just really don't care about it and you're just being lazy, basically, <laughs> which is often the case for me. I'm just... Like, I'm writing... I have wrote um, my subprocess module... Uh, delegator and uh, I've only run and tested it on two because that's what I use most of the time uh, I have to go back and make sure it should just work on three but I haven't run any tests to see if that's the case or not I will um, 
But anyway, so that's my my Python 2 and Python 3 stance. I just wanted to kind of share that. I like these little clips of like sharing knowledge. Uh, I've been listening to the podcast Developer T and um, the, the, the host of that podcast does a lot of these like advice to developer sections. Um, and so that was kind of like my little piece of advice to anyone who's listening. Um, Armin, do you have any uh, advice for our listeners in general? That's kind of maybe perhaps Python specific or open source library specific because you have a lot of experience as do I in maintaining very widely used libraries. Um, I'm sure you have some recommendations or some advice to people who are either trying to do the same thing or yeah, let's start, let's do that. Step one, pick a reasonable license. Pick a reasonable license. Yeah, we covered that base, definitely. Uh, step two, write code. Step three, I guess, social engineer other people into using it. Yeah. That's the, yeah, for me, it was always, I was just, as I was writing stuff, I would tweet about it. Uh, I was like, oh, it does this now, and it does this now, and it does this now. And that's what I always do. And then that gets people kind of interested in the path and the story behind the code. And it's not just a piece of code. It's, there's a story behind it. And that gets people really interested. Like Flask has a great story. It, you know, it was an April Fool's joke and then it turned into a real thing. And you're kind of secretive about your stuff. I don't know how you socially engineer people to use it. You're pro- I'm very transparent and I'm like, I have an idea I might start working on this weekend and I tweet about that. You know, you're not like that. You're you're much more like, here's the thing, it's done. How do you get people to use your stuff once it's already built? I At this point, I don't know. I, I, I used to take great care of like, the initial things that I built. There was like only three, four, five users, and I just wanted to hear their feedback, like see what they're doing. Yeah. Um, now at this point, I no longer care that much about what people do with my stuff. Like if it <laughs> if it solves the issue, it's cool, and it's great to hear when it solves the issue. Um, but I'm also staying quite reserved about um, this. Yes. It's, open source is not my business, and I don't want to make it into mine. Um, so, like, I'm trying to stay. Um, so, is that why uh, Flask, for example, is a very? I, I'm not gonna say. So, some people might say that it's poorly maintained. I will not say that at all. I think it's very well maintained. However, it's very inactively maintained. Yeah, it's one of those things that does not need to receive many updates in order to. It was an exception you know, that I updated Jinja to that extent that it did. And it was largely because I felt like I can actually, um, like I can spend like 80 hours or so to um, to fix the issues and not terribly regress. Um, yeah. Uh, but it turns out that's really hard. Um, like there's still two changes in there, which, um, which breaks some people's stuff. Where um, they're not, there were never features, but people took them as features. And now it's unclear uh, what to do with it. Um, what's an example of that? So it, there used to be a scoping bug in it where if you were in a loop, you had limited control to change a variable from an autoscope. And 
In Jinja 2. In Jinja 2. And the test, we're always testing that after the loop, the variable was reset to the original value. And that was the only test that was in there. But it turns out that in some limited circumstances, you could actually still access the last iteration's value in the loop. And people started to abuse this. Um, Oh, well, that's just the way Python works, right? Yeah, but in Chinja, it was never. Chinja always followed the Django scoping rules. And the Django scoping rules didn't permit this. Um, oh, okay. So it was, so an, it, was bug in the, it was an unintentional bug in the way that the Python is generated. Yeah. Um, and now it fixed this. And it turns out people really liked the feature. Um, obviously, it didn't always work. And, um, and it caused all kinds of really bad behavior. But now... I have to deal with like the regression from this and try to figure so out. So basically, you would do a for each, and then after the for each, you could still access no, the not last. Not after the for each, but in the for each, you could access last loops set. So if you would say like, oh, it was a very obscure like like why would you even do that? Um, but anyways, people people do all kinds. There of There was stuff. probably one person on Stack Overflow who figured it out and yeah, did an that's answer. That's literally what happened. Um, yeah, it's yeah. the same. Like I found the case where people used to set this, especially variable called caller in Chinja two. People started setting this as a default value on macros. I never knew that that was possible, um, and it was absolutely unclear how it should work uh, and what it should compile down to. It's it's like that gaming rules thing you're talking about, where yeah, if there's like, ever an exception, someone's gonna exploit it. Yeah, so this is this is kind of how I sat down. It's like I, when I when I rewrote the Chinja tracking system, I was like, these are the rules that are supposed to be, and I made them consistent throughout the system. Uh, because the old rules were never consistent, um, and now I have to deal with that people use the inconsistency. Um, well, anyways, that's, that's, the, that's the exception to the rule. I try not to do this kind of stuff. The only reason why I did it is because Ansible uses so much ginger that I felt like um, it will eventually bite me not to have a consistent behavior there. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's... And then I broke people's Ansible deployments. So that's great, I guess. Are you planning on working on Jinja 2 anymore? Because uh, I have some feedback for you if you are open to it. Uh, I don't want to land too many features. I want to land one or two features to fix some of the uh, things that I broke now that used to work before. I want to add explicit support for this, maybe. Um, but I, I like the fact that Jinja 2 is my favorite templating library, but... I find it difficult to use when I just want to like use a templating library, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Like if I'm just want to template out a text file um, and I Jinja 2 requires a lot of configuration. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of making an easier layer to it. Also, I want to make the auto escaping default eventually. Um, yes, that would be nice because I the experience when using it in Flask is quite pleasant. But when you go to use it directly, there's a lot of configuration yeah. that's baked in. Uh, it would be cool if that if there wasn't a, a layer that kind of yeah. gave you all of that yeah, capability I'm open, built I'm open in. To improving in that direction, I just want to like find a new new stable pointer. So like this is now JG two for the next ten years, <laughs> <laughs> something like this. That's good. And and so what do you see as the future of Flask? Do you see HTTP2 coming into the picture at any point? Or or probably not, I would assume, because that's a WSGI problem. I mean, it's a WSGI framework, right? So you are there any big changes that you know of that that are coming to Flask or any new features that the community is working on now that it's being a little bit more community-steered? Um, I expect that eventually someone will 
at least make a blessed path towards websockets in some capacity or another. Um, I made an attempt, but it's not a very good one. So <laughs> I, I, I don't expect websockets in Flask ever. I'm expecting a hub, a websocket hub or something like this. Or maybe an HTTP2 hub where you can start pushing things to the browser. I, I think they will eventually arise in some form or another. I did write a Flask WebSockets library, and it, it uses uh, the GEvent WebSockets framework. Um, so you have to you, you run a special worker with GUnicorn, um, and but it works really well, and uh, it gives you Flask routing on your WebSockets, um, and it just makes a WebSocket object available, just like you have a request object available, and then you can interact with the WebSockets um, with the standard routing, and it works pretty well. Um, I don't know of any other way to do it. I think there's maybe an Autobahn package or something available, but that's kind of heavyweight. It's not WebSockets, it's Autobahn. So <laughs> anyway, I think that's a good place to wrap up. I really have to use the restroom, so we should probably just end things instead of doing a pause and resume like we did last time. All right. So was well, a uh, nice rending about technology. Um, yeah, it was good. And maybe we'll have you back in a few weeks and to do another one. Yeah, let's see how this goes. All, All right. right. That sounds good. Thank you, everybody, for joining. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.